Otaku Night on Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Cooking with the Daleks. Enjoy the recipe that will exterminate your species. We will begin in mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give me witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're... All messed up. Bye-bye Saturday night. If you're listening live in Auckland, New Zealand, good morning, Auckland. And welcome to TalkCast 232 here at Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Join us as we talk about all things this week that probably mean nothing to anybody but us and the gajillions who listen with bated breath and bated hooks in the virtual fishbowl of sci-fi life. Deep in Area 51 on the sub-level 16, Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, and a psychotherapy creamery. If it's eating you up. Have another cup. I am the Fiorella LaGuardia of an alternate universe. I'm the Dome. Joining the talk cast tonight are some of our usual suspects. I always get a giggle there for the Fiorella LaGuardia bit, and I'm never sure why. Revere Time Vortex, our violent soundboard vixen, Countess of Shiny Stuff, who's going to be strangely silent tonight because she has no voice, uh, our own girl genius, Kriana. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Oh, I'm actually ah. in the living room with John Warren getting more tissues. <laughs> oh, Lord wow. help us. From the stacks of her personal quiet place wow. in the dank dungeons only indoor zen and vegetable garden and robot reading room, the unmutable woman herself, known throughout the cyberverse as the obvious successor to Dr. Susan Calvin, it's not Schrodinger's cat because it's wearing a cone of shame, it's the Zombrarian. So that was Kriana. <laughs> also, I'd like everyone to know that I'm sitting here in the dark broadcasting, not because it creates a mood, but because I am literally too lazy to walk the five feet to the light switch and turn it on. Well played, young lady. Well There's played There's insight into my life. <laughs> <laughs> From the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, our lovely Ginger Anjanu, who fell in love with Bella Lugosi on the set of Plan 9 from Outer Space and still has the Angora sweater to prove it. In fact, Voltaire snuggled it for her. It is the dead redhead. <laughs> I'm taking that Voltaire's uh, aura has not been completely washed off yet is there a portion of your body you've just decided never to wash again <laughs> no, i don't think x would let that happen <laughs> <laughs> our guest tonight is a writer creator and artist of a brand new series called the calamitous black oh my god the calamitous black devils joe schmalky joe welcome to the show hey how's it going guys Oh, yeah. You can clearly tell how it's going. <laughs> well, it's, it's nice to be here. And it's nice to be had. And, well, we're going to talk about uh, all things schmalky at the second half of the show. Uh, Joe's going to join us for the first half of the show as well. Um, and I'm going to start off talking about the creepiest event of the week. Ew. Michael Jackson comes alive... As, as the zombie hologram for the American Music Awards, and it was probably the creepiest thing ever. The only way they could have redeemed that is if he did Thriller. Did he do Thriller? He did not do Thriller. He did a new song, which what? means in the zombie universe, he was actually doing something new. My understanding was this was like a pitch for a whole like loft album or something, right? Which is actually out of outtakes or something. Stuff that he never quote finished unquote. Terrifying, terrifying. <laughs> Not as terrifying as where it comes from because in the late 
uh, 70s, early 80s, there was a movie starring uh, Susan Day and uh, the... the I'm, I'm sorry? Gene Simmons, you said. And Gene Simmons, right, uh, called Looker, in which fashion models, which Susan Day, frankly, never was, uh, were being <laughs> replicated and, and made into holograms and killed so that they would work for free. And... <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll grant you it That's wasn't a just great... so much cheaper. I know, isn't it? Don't you think? This the terrifying part was that the movie was hilarious rather than terrifying. But we're clearly at a point right now where the technology exists to be able to do this. So fashion models beware. Uh, the other thing, the the corollary to this is that in India, where they're having the largest election. Uh, on the planet Earth, with over uh, 650 million people voting, there's so many places for the prime ministers, people running for prime minister to be, that a lot of them are giving speeches as holograms. I saw this. That looks serious? very impressive. That's freaking scary. That's possibly the coolest thing I've ever heard. Didn't they do a Star Trek original Star Trek episode about that? Hmm. Can't assassinate a hologram. Yeah. No, isn't well. I don't think it was a hologram, but the guy didn't exist anymore. He had died years ago. But they were trying to keep the the race under the thumb, and so they kept saying, "Yes, yes, uh, there was a Star Trek episode like this." Yes. (laughs) They're like, "You're listening to a ghost. He doesn't. He doesn't exist anymore." They're like, "No, it's not true." And they spun the chair around, and there was nothing there. It was just a hat or something. Oh, my gosh. Like in Big Love, because I've been watching that on the Netflix. (laughs) The Netflix? The prophet of the polygamist dies, and they kept him in the freezer for, like, months. Oh. And pretended that he was still alive. Oh, my. Spoiler for Big Love. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of spoilers you can go into for Big Love. Okay. As in, what the hell was anybody thinking? But that's a whole other story. Oh, my. Uh, so Days of Future Past is starting to open. Uh, X-Men, Days of Future Past. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've gotten a, a number of really, really good movies. Captain America, uh, Godzilla, which has gotten mixed reviews, but I'm told somebody in the cast likes good. it. Yes. But there's not enough Godzilla in the film. It's true. He's only in it for like 20 minutes. That's the biggest complaint. And the beginning is pretty slow. Like the first 15, 20 minutes, it's like, oh, this is a little slow. But once things get going, um, I thought it was, again, I thought it was really cool that they actually showed it, the monsters from people eye view, because usually we get them at monster eye view or down or something like that. We actually see them, people looking up and the camera follows how big they are to try to give you perspective. And they haven't done a lot of movies like that in the Godzilla group before, so that was pretty cool. But, I mean, seriously, can anybody do a better Godzilla movie than Matthew Broderick? Seriously? Yes! (laughs) Virtually anyone, yes. If if I had to choose between Godzilla and Pacific Rim, though, I'd say Pacific Rim was a better film. Although... Uh, the Mutu or the Motu that were in the new Godzilla, um, they're throughout the film. You see a lot of them. You just yes. don't see a lot of Godzilla. Yeah. You know, and it's called Godzilla, not Motu, versus Godzilla. So. Speaking of, of the 1998 one, is that where you were going, Dome? I'm not no, sure. I wasn't, but go ahead. Apparently, Riff Tracks, who is Mike Nelson, who was the lead in the second half right. of uh, MST3K, and his buddies who do their own version of MST3K called Riff Tracks, have a Kickstarter up that is making fun. A live, they're going to do a live version of the 1998 Godzilla. It just started. They have 19 days left to go. They were trying to raise $100,000, and they already have almost $155,000. Holy shit. 
I mean, first first of all, that's not even fair. I mean, you're making fun of a movie that's hilarious to begin with, albeit unintentionally. So bad. Wow. But Good yeah, luck, guys. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to say, though, it, my... It is a lot of fun. I will say that, you know. <laughs> it, it's the biggest Godzilla, too. Like, scale-wise, he's the biggest they've ever made him. Yes. Yes. So I do of... have to say, though, that my favorite newly released Godzilla film is about three seconds long, and it's the part of the new iPhone commercial oh, where God, the dad yes. dresses his oh. kid up as a dinosaur and builds a block city. I completely <laughs> agree. And the kid that stomps through it, and they film it. That is the world's best Godzilla film, and you can never tell me otherwise. That was okay. awesome. I'll Thanks. go with that. Hey, the best uh, second film in a series that you're never going to want to see <laughs> is... Is Skyline 2. Because there were absolutely no unanswered questions in Skyline 1. <laughs> Skyline 1 was one of the worst sci fi movies ever. What is it about? It's It came out uh, right around the same time Battle Los Angeles came out. And they were essentially the same movie, except Battle Los Angeles was really good and Skyline <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> Scrubs Donald Faison is the is the anti-hero who gets eaten halfway through the film by aliens. And he was also s- in Clueless, so he was yes. used to working with aliens. <laughs> oh, there you go. No, I didn't. And, and, oh my God, what a horrible film it was. And the ending is so implausibly, anticlimactically silly. You sit there and you look at it and you go, 93 minutes and this is how it ends? So I have no I desire to see Oh, it was just, just horrifying. So what else we got going on, guys? Is that the one that had all the bottles, like in short shorts and stuff? <laughs> No, uh, I, I'm serious. I can't remember from the ads. You can't remember from what? Is that the one that it was? Um, from the ads. Was it the one with all the models trying to tether up with the short shorts? No, 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 no. In Skyline, they keep hiding in penthouses where, like, uh, hipsters are, are also hiding, trying to kill them to keep their Perrier. It was just amazing. Okay. <laughs> So, can we talk Dad, about something that, that we're angry about? Can we get really mad for a second? Sure, go ahead. J.J. Sure. Abrams <laughs> has Our... always been a, kind of a horrible person, and we've always kind of questioned him and his motives, but he has never really crossed the line for me into ruining my childhood, quite like Until Michael Bay today. did. Until now? Well, he he never, like, outdid Michael Bay in that. <laughs> uh, and now he's gone, and he not only out-Michael Bayed Michael Bay, he went past, he went zipping past that and into, like, I don't even know. Like, you know how they're every Christmas, I don't know, I don't run into them, but... People tell me that there are pornographies with, like, elves and Santa, and that kind of ruins your childhood a little. Yeah. This ruins my childhood about that much. Yeah. J.J. Abrams has decreed that Jim Henson's Creature Shop is not working on Star Wars anymore. Yeah, they're going to have absolutely no affiliation with uh, the new trilogy of Star Wars movies at all. I am taking a hit out. On my on J.J. Abrams. Um, yeah, it, it's really kind of ridiculous. I mean, this is almost akin to when he took over the Star Trek franchise, mm-hmm. and the first words out of his mouth were, "Well, I was never really a fan of the original Star Trek." At which point, I said to myself, "Well, you're going to fuck this one up," and he did. Well, and I was just thinking the other day, 
as I was watching Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge, which is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a great show. I love it. Um, I was thinking as I was watching that, I was like, you know, if they had let the Creature Shop build Jar Jar Binks and had let Jar Jar Binks be a Henson Creature Shop puppet instead of whatever CGI thing he was, I bet that would have been so much of a better character. Probably. Yeah, it, it cer- certainly had a much better chance of working than, than what actually Any occurred. Any movie you know? that uses all CGI without puppetry or models, you can see that it looks fake. Mm. Just, oh, yeah. They, they, they just had an interview with Vigo... Uh, Mortensen. Yeah, the guy from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yep. Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, so he was saying how the new Hobbit film sucks so bad because they're not using modeling on it. And you can tell they're not doing that. And, I mean, Gollum was a totally CGI creature and stuff like that in their, their trilogy. But, uh, you know, there was an actor acting out, so it looked good. And if, if you watch the new ones, the Benjamin Cumberbatch doing uh, Smaug and stuff like that, it's pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, the scenery just kind of looks, I don't know, blown out and fake. That's just my opinion. So. No, and the problem is when your eyes are telling you one thing, you know, and, and you're, you're – you know, you're trying to suspend belief to be able to enjoy this, and your mind is going, but no, but no, but no. It creates an uncomfortable situation for the audience. And, you know, for J.J. Abrams to pull this now, uh, and and the interesting thing is Henson's Creature Shop is still part of Disney. At least that's my understanding of it. Yes. So it why is. would they not do that? Why would they go out of their way to do that? Well, and one of my complaints is, and I saw it a little bit in the most in the uh, first, th- not the first. It's so hard to talk about them in the new trilogy. <laughs> yeah. The Episodes current one, two, new three. trilogy that is the first three movies. I don't even know. Anyway, in the bad ones. you can kind of tell the creature shop just has this way of building background characters who create so much story in seconds and they think so hard about it and they work so hard creating these characters who you see for a couple of seconds but they just create a world for you they do all that world building yeah with these little like things that look like bugs running past and they it, it doesn't i feel like the most recent three were more empty if that makes sense they were clearly not real and yeah the, they were more the- sterile there wasn't as much background yep How much money can they really be saving on using all digital, uh, you know, CGI graphics as opposed to using, like, stand-ins and crap? I mean, all these movies that always had, like, big casts and stuff or big battle scenes, they'd always have tiers of characters, right? So you have the guys up front that you see on the camera, and they're in the heavy makeup. They look like, you know, the Ewoks or whatever. And then as you get further back, it's just like a dude in a tether cloth, you know? (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> my my question is like, how much money is the studio saving on not paying people? Right? It can't be that much because well, the extras it, I, make nothing anyway. Actually, it kind of can be that much because most of the CGI work is farmed out to the Pacific Rim. Uh, 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 uh. So it's going overseas somewhere. Or? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's just un-American. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more for a film that's being shot in Indonesia. But, you know. Hey, anybody want to buy Ray Bradbury's house? Is it up for sale? It is up for sale. Uh, Kriana wants to buy it for me. Oh, how nice of her. She you're told have to, me. I, have to, I want to buy that house. <laughs> now we have it. <laughs> Now we have it recorded, and we'll be moving in there in about a year. Yes. Well, 
The good news is, yeah, it's for okay. sale. The bad news is it's for sale. I mean, you know, because the estate of Ray Bradbury has kind of cleaned out his his uh, Los Angeles uh, bungalow. <laughs> Uh, three bedrooms, three bathrooms, basement, hardwood floors, 2,500 square feet. I'm sorry? And, uh, is it next to Charles Schultz's house? Because his house is up to sale, too. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, but the, the estate is run by his four children and his eight grandchildren, who've decided that, yeah, when we're done with everything we want to do with it, you can have it for 1.5 mil. So, Kriana, be writing that check for uh, 1.5 million, and you can yes. have. Yes, I am writing that check. <laughs> Nobody's buying that, well, but that's okay. The Charles Schultz house, the people, one of the big things about it is that it has two paintings that Charles Schultz had done for one of Charlie Brown and one of Snoopy that he did for his kids in their bedroom. Oh, and the people wow. who house right now are saying that they may actually cut those walls out of the house and sell them separately from the house. <laughs> that might not actually be a bad thing, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> I don't know if if it was my house, man. I'm telling you, I would that that would be my office with the original. Well, was it, uh, the, this uh, this Scandinavian guy? I think I think I'm getting the region right. Bought Goya's uh, last residence because he painted these 15 paintings inside of it, called oh, the wow. Black Paintings. And he kept the house just as is for so many years, but then the house just fell into disrepair. And so they had to actually cut all the paintings out of the wall because he, he painted on the plaster of the wall. Wow. And, you know, I think it went through a generation or two of, uh, like, people just being like, oh, it's cool, don't don't mess with it. But then they were like, oh, my God, it's falling apart. We have to preserve it while we still can. So... So they put those pieces in the museum instead? Uh, yeah, now they're in a museum, I think, in Madrid or something like that. But um, it's just, it's pretty incredible stuff because it's the it, it was the last paintings he ever did in his life. He, he yeah, was dying, was he lived cool. in this villa, and he just decided, I'm going to paint on these walls. And it's really horrifying stuff, like uh, Saturn eating his children and um, <laughs> well, cool. got a Black Sabbath <laughs> and stuff like that. So. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, I don't know. I, I, sure I, it's not as as, as uh, beautiful to have in a kid's room or something. Probably not, no. You know, <laughs> nightmares, whole routine. But, I, uh, I would kind of dig buying the house just to have the, like, hey, man, this is the house the Charlie Brown guy lived in. Check it out. There's Snoopy on the wall. Absolutely. But, uh, and the original Snoopy. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's pretty sweet. So I did hear there, there was the uh, Roosevelt Hotel to stay on the topic for one second. Uh, had a pillar that was painted by some famous artist at some point, and then they some jerk off like went in there and painted over it white. So like there was this uh, like fa- I'm just gonna throw a name out there. I don't think it's right, but like imagine Jackson Pollock painted on a pillar. <laughs> and they were like trying to preserve it. They're like, "Yes, that's the Pollock pillar right there." And then like they came in one day, and this guy was like, "Yeah, I cleaned up that mess for you." <laughs> and they were like, "What the fuck, mm. man? <laughs> Hello, idiot! You're fired." Roosevelt Hotel. Look it up. I'm sure you'll find the mythos in there somewhere. Were those James Thurber sketches? Because it seems to me that that was. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. So anyhow, with Peter Capaldi uh, taking over the helm as Doctor Who uh, and actually filming episodes right now, uh, we, we're going to be talking to our UK uh, uh, correspondent about that soon, I hope. Uh, Matt Smith uh, got on the soapbox this week and said he totally will come back to Doctor Who. Why? <laughs> How? He will? Uh, at Calgary Expo last week, Smith said, 
I'm just waiting for the next anniversary. I spoke to Stephen the other day and said, what's the quickest one we can do? Is he really, really pushing it that hard? I mean, I think he's just trying to... I was going to say, just does he have no jobs? I think he's trying to indicate that he did not leave on bad terms. I hope that's what it is. Because there were some rumors to that effect, if I remember. And I know that um, Chris Eccleston left on such bad terms. He left on very bad terms, Yeah, and I mean, David Tennant was saying similar things. And I think that what Matt Smith and David Tennant have both tried to do is say, I didn't leave because I didn't love it anymore. I left because it was time to leave. And I think they're trying to make the transition easier for the more rabid style of fans who are mad because it's not Matt Smith or it's not David Tennant anymore. I I hope they've gotten past that at this point, now that we're on our fourth Doctor in the reboots. Um, I hope so, too. But you know there are some who haven't. There's some, like, 13-year-old girl crying into a picture of Matt Smith right now. And that's fine. She can cry. Learn how to deal with it, kid. Yeah, but Matt Smith is helping. That's all. Yeah, I suppose. I I think he's just trying to say there's no hard feelings, and I still love the franchise, and it's still a wonderful franchise. And I still can't wait to see how Peter Capaldi does it. I'm yeah. so looking forward to that. Me too. And I appreciate that Matt Smith has turned into a big giant nerd. <laughs> we'll get them all eventually. <laughs> uh, you know, I was going to talk about uh, David Goyer, who's, a, who's an artist. Uh, and he came up with a vicious attack against She-Hulk as a porn star for uh, Marvel Comics. I did read that, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I was, hmm? no, I was, I was going to talk about it some more. He doesn't want her or no, he thinks uh, he referred to She-Hulk as essentially Marvel's porn star. I think he retracted a little bit of it like a day or two after Stan Lee commented. on it. Yeah. Stan Lee kind of got right in his face over it too. Uh, She-Hulk was the extension of the male power fantasy so it's like if I'm going to be this geek who becomes the Hulk then let's create a giant green porn star who is a character serves to service the Hulk and I just kind of you know God could you be any more misogynistic about it she's she's the she's the opposite of the Hulk in a lot of ways because she's she's totally aware of who she is still she's hyper intelligent and she's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's a lawyer, and uh, she's Bruce Banner's cousin. So there's there's also a weird thing by saying like she was made for the Hulk because like so that there's like incest going on, but yeah. that that wasn't the case at all. Stanley was like, no, I wanted to make a powerful female character. He's like, and uh, you know, the Hulk actually came to mind because I was like, what happened if the Hulk was actually intelligent? And so. That there, there was the creation of She-Hulk. But there you go. And it made Dylan very happy. <laughs> yes, it did. Thank you so much. So you know, Goyer, bite me. You're an idiot. And that's where I'm leaving that. I'm sorry. Does that was was that too difficult? Was that too rough? Well, also, let's also, if we're talking about comics, apparently, more. Uh, no, it's DC has a ton of jobs. They're looking to replace people. I don't know if it's because of all the issues that they've been having lately with poor choices. Well, uh, the whole staff, the whole group working on Batgirl quit when they wouldn't let her get married. They did. And I think a lot of other people have been, too. So if you go to the link that we have up, there's like a whole list of marketing and everything else that all kinds of people DC is trying DC, I missed this. Was was there some big like failure on their part, or the no. biggest? There were, yeah, there was a bunch of them. Too stupid to to list. Yeah, there are just so many bad choices they made at one time uh, on some <laughs> comics. That 
I, I'd so, like an example, please. <laughs> well, the if you'd like an example, um, uh, they had they let the writing team who that was working on Batgirl have her come out and have a girlfriend and all this stuff. And then the writing teams wrote a bit where wrote an issue. Sorry, I couldn't come up with it. Um, Wrote an issue where she got, she and her girlfriend got married and DC said, no, you can't do that. And they said, but it fits the story and this is how it fits the direction that the story is going. And this is how it's actually important to have that happen. And DC said, no. Oh, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah. So so the the writing writing team team won. And they thought, well, if we all quit, certainly they'll let it come back. I mean, part of that was J.H. Williams III. And they're like, oh, okay, see ya. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. Yeah, uh, comics should be one of the first venues that embraces this kind of crap too. You know, where it's well, it's not crap. It's it's happening. It's all around. But it's it it. And I'm I am pro gay gay marriage and everything. But it's one of the things where you can it, it's it's a it's an avenue where you can like just write a real story about real life, but you can put it in a fantasy setting. You can set it in any backdrop that you want. Nobody should really be judging it because it's all supposed to be make-believe, too. Yeah. Well, and DC was making some noise about how they didn't want it to be about Batgirl as a person. They wanted it to be about Batgirl as a hero, and they thought that... that... Sorry, dear, but that Are are we talking about Batwoman? No, I thought it was Batgirl. It was Batwoman? I'm sorry. Yeah, Batwoman's the one that's gay, right? Right. Right. I apologize. I I was getting a little confused there for a second because I was like, damn, wow, Batgirl's gay, too. No, that woman is gay. Sorry. No, it's that woman. Back when I was a child, there was only Batman riding the Batgirl. But I mean, they've established they had established that character for some time that way. And her, she was marrying her partner, who was in GCPD, and it was very well established in in GCPD, Gotham Central Police Department, that um that the captain of the police department was gay and that was the question and it just you know this the way that the story was going it all fit together it was working and then suddenly they're like oh no that's really that's really weird that's really weird i'm not i'm not down with that Neither were we. That was part of what we were saying. They're making really bad choices. But they made a couple other really odd choices around the same time. Right, the whole Harley thing. and Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, yeah, that was just ugly. But if you want to see something cool... I mean, uh, what was their argument? Are they trying to be, uh, you know, are they marketing to a different type of people that are getting, like, offended by this? Because last I checked, most of the people that are into science fiction comic books and horror and stuff like that are pretty open-minded folks, you know? Maybe they're they actually, the wrong people. They actually didn't give a rationale other than, no, we're not doing that. No, they, oh, they said it. that they didn't want it to be about her personal life. And they didn't... I think that the argument behind the argument was, well, if we do this, the only focus on Batwoman as a comic is going to be, oh, that's the one where... The get where the lesbian couple got married, and it's going to stop being about Batwoman. So it wouldn't have. It, it, but the whole, the whole purpose of the character was what made her different and special is a the artwork from the get go on that series has been incredible. And a couple of the artists quit too. Right. Really. This whole thing. I I haven't collected anything past. Well, this I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend like I'm this huge Batwoman uh, connoisseur. But I thought the first couple issues were great. I followed her in the uh, 52 storyline, and the whole the yep. whole idea that 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 she was gay and everything like that. I thought that was cool. I thought that added like an extra layer to the character, and to deny her the rights that are happening to people in what, how many states now have embraced this? Uh, 17? Yeah. You know, she obviously lives in a metropolitan area where this is legal. It's going to happen. I mean, also, one of their their excuses was that, 
wedding issues don't sell. And it's like, excuse me, Fantastic Four, where they got married. Spider-Man marries Mary Jane. Spider-Man. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And Green Lantern is marrying his boyfriend, and that issue sold extra because fans bought it. And um, gay, gay people were like, I want this comic. Yeah, it, it Cute tends guys to open it up. Kissing? That's my kind of thing. <laughs> well, not my kind of thing, but it, it's, it's I'm sure gay guys kind of, I don't know. Well, maybe they're I'm like just going to grab my shovel and dig a little deeper into that one. <laughs> the other states that, that recognize that people have the right to exist, but they just don't want to acknowledge it at this point. Right. <laughs> well, speaking of weddings, uh, the wedding event on television this last week was a little Monroe and Rosalie Big Fat Wesson wedding on Grimm. And damn, uh, if you had to end a season uh, on a great episode, this was it. Yeah, it was. This was the best episode of the season. Uh, It brought closure to five or six different storylines and opened up about nine or ten more at the same time. I mean, I will never go to a Flerg and Gubin wedding, so I don't know about these things. But uh, holy crap, what a great episode. I really like the way this, this series is going. It's, it's wonderful. I do too. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for the slow evolution of Grimm into a sitcom featuring Monroe's foibles as a new dad. There we go. And every so often, his friend, the police officer, who's also a Grim, comes wandering in and fumbles <laughs> about and then wanders back out. Oh, they've got a name for it. It's Gergen Flubrin Knows Best. <laughs> I would watch that show. I would definitely watch that I would. show. I would. Yep, yep. So if you're reality Monroe Mance. Absolutely. Uh, you know, here's something you can replace community with. Because uh, in the mortuary this week at the top of the list is Warehouse 13, Dracula, oh. Revolution, which I don't know anybody who was actually watching that, oh. and Community, which is not even a genre show, but we all love it. I'm sad about Warehouse 13, but at least it's going out fairly well. I think the last uh, six episode story arc was just wonderful. I love the one where they did the telenovela. That was <laughs> that was so good. Yeah, the right. shows that have been canceled, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I liked Community quite a bit, um, but of course, you know, the cast has been dying off. Like, not dying off, but uh, slowly <laughs> skirting away from the series. You had Chevy Chase Wait, leave. Spoilers. <laughs> well, Chevy Chase didn't leave so much as. There was this giant cane that came out from the wings and, and hooked him in the neck. Because yeah. he was a horrible human being. <laughs> he wasn't acting at all. On for a while. He really it? was. No, that's been going on for a while, unfortunately. Yes. I'm actually gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here because Kriana's not here this week to back me up and say I'm actually kind of sad that Dracula's going away. I, I was upset to hear that, too. It left you on, on such a big cliffhanger with this It series. did, and was it was it? one of those series that took a while to get going, but once See, it I never did, got we were in. like, I can't give this up. It's okay. like... Yeah. I did one of those Hulu weekends where I, like, you know, I just opened them all up at once and, like, started plowing through, like, five or six episodes, and I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty good, you know? I, yeah. John Smyers, like, had me going. And With then, his horrible American accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, it made sense, right? Because he's not really supposed to... He, he's pretending to be an American. So you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, he does a was, shitty American accent. It was pretty good writing. I don't know if he actually can't do an American accent or if they wrote that and then he just did a bad American accent. It doesn't matter. But it, it doesn't brilliant. matter because either way, it was good writing. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I was disappointed to see that. I was happy to see that Hannibal was coming back, though. Yeah, I would rather have Hannibal back than Dracula. 
but I'm gonna miss his his sidekick. Both of them. Oh, I'm gonna uh, miss, yeah, Renfield. I'm gonna miss Renfield, the giant black lawyer, and I'm gonna miss the Polish engineer guy. Was he Polish? I think he was Polish. He was adorable and had some of the best one-liners in the series. I like the whole fact that they were, you know, it was doing like a, uh, they were industrializing uh, Europe and making uh, free electricity. And I thought that was just cool. They were like using Marconi waves and. Uh, yeah, there is this subtle steampunk thing going on with it. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, it was a different take on the whole Dracula mythos, and it was cool. And I guess just not enough people were watching it. So, yeah, we take our hats off to Dracula. There were so many unanswered questions. <laughs> Can I back us up back to comics just for a second? Because I'd never heard of this before. Sure, go ahead. In a couple weekends, they're doing something called the Comic Book Theater Festival. In New York City, it's going to be uh, June 3rd. Actually, it's the whole month of June, June 3rd through the 29th. And they've done small, like, one-act plays based on, I guess, comic book-type themes. And they have names like El Coqui, El Spectacular, and The Bottle of Doom, and King Kirby, <laughs> and The Astonishing Adventures. King Kirby. That's a Kickstarter <laughs> right now. The Astonishing Adventures of All-American Girl and the Scarlet Skunk. Um, okay. But one of the cool ones that I saw that caught my eye was, let me get back down here, it's called Retro-Controversy. Uh Written by Natalie Zutter, directed by Shannon Lippert. Um, Sting was everybody's favorite Wonder Girl. Rooftop jumping sidekick until the tragic accident that left her partially paralyzed. Slowly and painfully, Eleanor recreates herself as Echo, the brainy superhero support system. But 20 years later, she's being retconned. Stinger is now a shiny new, is back shiny and new and was never paralyzed to begin with. Now Echo has to use that big brain of hers to keep the cannon from changing. I mean, that's very comic book. And so... Yeah, totally. If you're going to be in New York, that might be an actual cool theater thing to go hang out. They're doing it at some place called The Wall. I'm sorry. Oh. The Brick. The Brick. The Brick. And I guess you can pick just one show or you can get uh, a ticket with several of them at the same time. But um, if you're in New York, go see it and then let us know about it because it sounds really fun. So normally, like 15 minutes ago, we would have done the uh, poll, <laughs> but there's no poll this week, so we didn't have a poll. And we last did, year, just didn't get up there. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll definitely have one up this week, and, and yep. Facebook will find another way to fuck us over with it. So <laughs> we'll blame Drew for graduating. No, we're, we're going to blame Mark Zuckerberg because we can. Okay. There we go. Also, congratulations, Drew. Yeah. Yay. Congratulations on graduating, sweetie. Yay. So I'm just happy he doesn't have to pay for it. No more tuition. <laughs> there you go. So last year at Boston Comic Con, this lovely lady came up to us and said, my husband does this comic book. Can I show it to you? And Zombrari looked at it and went, sure, show me the comic book. And began to read it. This was at Granite Con. Yeah, it was Granite Con, not not You said Boston. I wasn't at Boston. That's right. That was at Granite Con. And sat there and stuck her head inside this book until I took it away from her. (laughs) So she never got to read the whole thing. Wouldn't give it back. The book is called The Calamitous Black Devils. And the writer and artist for it, Joe Schmalky, has been sitting around talking with us uh, for the entire show. Joe, uh, again, welcome to the show. Hello. (laughs) So how did you become uh, a comic book artist, writer? Where where did you, uh, after you you got a BFA at UMass... uh, where did you? Yeah. I I I went to um, well actually I went to Massachusetts College of Art 
um, where I studied painting and um, video work, and then I got into film. Uh, I dropped out of college. I moved out to California to make a movie because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do uh, at uh-huh. school. I'm just going to Sounds do like there should be the Almond Brothers in the background here, but go on. <laughs> um, so I went out there. I ended up painting fiberglass walls to look like rock for about a year before moving to New Orleans, where I went to UNO for a year uh, studying filmmaking. And then uh, that didn't turn out so well. So uh, I moved back to Boston, and that's where I went to UMass and graduated from there. And under um, my tutelage there, I, I decided I was going to become like a, a fine painter. Uh, but growing up, my, my father and me had this love for comic books. Uh, he was really into The Punisher, Sergeant Rock, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, my Uncle David was kind of into the Uncanny X-Men. My dad thought those were pretty weird, but I liked them a lot. Uh, and this is around the time where <clears throat> it was the 80s, and the Morlocks were like big characters. Storm got her like mohawk haircut and all this other stuff. Ah, so was, yes. That's pretty dope. Um, so anyways, I graduate from college, and of course, you know, there's all these people lining up to sign a... Uh, a, a painter from UMass Boston to work for them. Uh, so I went to go work as a social worker. And Manhattan. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why, how many times have we heard that one? <laughs> Your career is so bright for you right now, son. Um, yeah, they, they don't, there's no jobs waiting for you. Um, so I went don't to go. Don't tell that to Drew. <laughs> uh, my advice is go into something that makes you money and then pursue the art. <laughs> uh, there you go. Um, anyways, so I, I, I moved to Manhattan. I become a social worker for a time, and then I moved uh, to Los Angeles with, with my wife. Um, we, we made a horror film back in 2005 because I was still into the the film thing at that point, I really like storytelling, you know, that's what, that's the basis behind this. So we made a horror movie, but working with other people is not really, I can collaborate with a couple of heads, but a, a film you're, you're working with a whole slew of people and especially the producers and stuff like that. Uh, it just becomes very difficult and it really turned me off the whole thing. But now I'm living in Los Angeles and I ended up working at Authentic Entertainment where I was editing reality TV shows and stuff like that. But I still wanted to to do like, you know, big... I, I didn't want to think small. Like, if you're, if you're nobody, you got to make this small film, right? Because, like, a studio's not there being like, oh, here's a million dollars. Make your idea. Um, you got to make these small films and stuff. And it was just, it was very difficult. So I was like, I'm going to make comic books because I loved comic books and I've got the artistic training. So I love drawing. And so I I tried out for a Zurich Foundation grant while I was living in California. I failed. And looking at the material that I submitted now, um, you know, I kind of cringe looking at it because I'm like, oh, that was really bad. Um, but um, uh, throughout the years, I, I kept thinking like, oh, this is something I really want to do now. You know, I, 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 my passion for filmmaking had sort of fallen away. I, I ended up doing storyboards a couple of times. And which is very comic booky, you know, where you're doing some quick sketches and yeah, yeah. Uh, camera angles and stuff. So you're thinking like a filmmaker. So um, I did research for many years on doing a World War II story. And um, that's where I came up with the, the concept for the Calamitous Black Devils. And the story changed. Uh, maybe like three or four times before it was actually a completed like concept. And, um, the, you know, the whole Kickstarter crowdsourcing thing didn't exist until a couple of years ago. So, uh, before that there was no way for some schlub, nobody like me to 
go out there and just like pitch your idea and see see if you could get some money for it right um you were just like wherever you were you could try and pitch it around there and if you had a bunch of friends maybe you were lucky but i moved around so many times i move i don't know every couple years maine is the longest i've ever lived in one spot in my entire life so um anyways uh, these guys that run the comic book shop in, in Portland, Maine, uh, Coast City Comics, they were talking to me, and I, I pitched the concept to the owner, and he was like, oh, that's a really cool idea. He's like, you should really do that. And then I have this friend who was really pushing me to create more. He's like, you're so much happier when you're creating. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So I went ahead and I bought a table for a convention, and then and then – I started writing the story, and then I started drawing it, and then I, I, I created a Kickstarter for it, which got funded. And I made, I don't know, like 173% of what I needed. So I was able to actually pay for the printing of the first three issues just from the Kickstarter money alone. I didn't pocket any of the money. It just went into all, like, backer rewards and stuff like that. So, and that, that was pretty cool for me because then I started just being like, I went to my first convention and, you know, people liked it. They liked the concept, which is it's a, it's World War Two. It's a horror sci-fi story about this elite brigade of army operatives that go behind enemy lines to stop the Nazis from opening up this multidimensional gateway that will lead to this planet at the center of the universe where this ancient god, Ananza Hawk, can raise an army of the dead so the Nazis will get this unstoppable army. The black devils stop the Nazis, but they get sucked into the doorway and they're scattered across this planet. The only way to get back home is to come back together. Um, but in order to do that, they got to fight through hordes of mutants and aliens and the undead and some ancient gods. And then they finally, well, you got to read the story. So there you go. That's the pitch. Where did that story come from? <laughs> well, um, like I, uh, basically, when I write a story, I'm like, okay, what are the things that I like to see, and like, how far can I go with this particular thing? And I was like, uh, this might be my one shot to get something out there. So I'm just going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. So I've got Nazis, werewolves, vampires, aliens, ancient gods, an elite army brigade that includes, like, badasses from every allied nation. So you've got a Russian night witch, a British MI5, a British MI6, uh, Canadian and American trackers and hunters and... Yeah, so I was just like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw all this together and see where pieces land. And I had a, you know, I, I, I create a outline for the story. Like, I know how it's going to start, where it's going to lead, and where it's going to end. And then it's about filling in the guts of, of your tale. Um, well, you see, that, that was kind of my question, because you're, you know, you have a background in filmmaking, you have a background in storyboarding, and that's all fairly linear work and I, I've got to tell you Calamitous Black Devils is not a linear piece at no. least for me no it, it, it flies all over the place because again you know if something struck me if it, if it struck my fancy I was going to write about it so I was like oh we're going to go back in time and we're going to talk about the origin of this <laughs> yeah. character right <laughs> So, uh, like, half I, I mean, issue two, you know, the plague years in Bordeaux, France, because I'm like, yep, the disappearance of Princess Joan during the Black Plague years really interested me. So now I'm going to include that in the story. So I did that. That's basically how that works. There were, there were, a, couple, there were a couple of points during it where I'm going, okay. Now we're going to take a side trip for a little bit. Then we're going to come back eventually and continue on. And the nice thing about it was, was that it was a, the side trips that you take in the book are really interesting. I use a lot of historical references for any kind of fiction that I write. So um, when I'm talking about Operation Tidal Wave, which is an issue one, 
it really existed. That was a real mission. Um, when I talk about Princess Joan being, you know, consumed by the plague in Bordeaux, France, that really happened. Oh. I'm just putting a fictional spin on how everything went down. Yeah, the Nazi vampire werewolves, that maybe not actually <laughs> happened. And I get that. But uh, it's just, uh, it's really interesting storytelling. Uh, the Thanks. graphics are rather stark. And they kind of slap you around a little bit with just how stark you get from time to time. It's very uh, okay. So when I go into a piece or a body of work, it has a theme to it, right? So this is you're looking at two years of my life, and I basically studied Russian World War II posters to come up with the look for this thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, makes oh, sense. You get a very uh, lots of people have compared it to Mignola, uh, Mike Mignola, or Frank Miller. And yeah, I looked at their work a lot because that stuff is very similar to a, a, a Russian World War II uh, poster, you know, promo poster, like fight the Nazis, you know, join the fight. So um, that's the look of this particular book. And if it looks stark, it lots, it, I'm not going to lie, I hate drawing backgrounds, so I <laughs> way around that if I can. But if I if I do have to draw a background because it's part of the story, I try to put a lot of time and effort into it. But I, I'm more into figurative drawing altogether. Well, I mean, it it sets a tone through the whole thing. That the 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 stark nature of the of the graphics counterpoints where you're going and what you're doing really well. Thanks. Thanks. No, you're you're welcome. It was it was a fun read. It really was. Yeah, I've gotten some uh, interesting reviews on it. Um, anyways, the the cool part about this whole process was uh, my basically my freshman effort to put out a book got picked up right away. So um, these guys in Ohio, Broken Icon Comics, they looked at it. They thought it would mix with their uh, current run of books. They only produce graphic novels right now. Um, mm -hmm. Just because it's that's the market they're in. They're like, we're going to give you guys full stories. So I think I have the biggest book they've ever produced at this point, but they they uh, they picked it up after issue two came out. and uh, So it's 186 pages, cover to cover, full color. I painted the whole thing. I Well, digitally painted it. I illustrated the whole thing. I wrote the whole thing. So, yeah, and so this, it's also like it's a piece for me to show other companies like, hey, this is what I can do. I'm, right now, I, I still work in uh, entertainment industry. I, I work uh, at WMTW in Portland, Maine, which is ABC News. Uh, so I work in television. That's my daytime job. And then I do this when I'm not working. My wife is very... Nice by letting me uh, <laughs> work on this stuff with two small children at home. You know, it's it's just a lot on on us, and we're actually um, it's great we're having this interview now. Uh, in a couple of days, we're on the road to West Virginia, where the launch of the book is happening at Tri-State Comic Con. And the book is going to be available also at Barnes and Noble and it's, at Amazon.com. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And oh yeah, and um, we're doing pre-orders for the book as well. If you pre-order it through my site, which is just www.josephschmalky.com, if you go to the store on that uh, page, uh, all pre-orders come with. I'll, I'll do like a personalized sketch on the inside cover. Very cool. Yeah, and that's just until Tuesday because after Tuesday, uh, I'm going to take that link down, and everything will just be sold. On, um, through Broken Icon Comics. So, so, so what's on Saturday? Get over there. Absolutely, absolutely, and we'll have the links to the website for you for that. Coming up in the next couple of weeks on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, 
On the 31st, Nick Acosta and Travis Ritchie talk about the Inspector Chronicles. And on the 6th of June, Derek and Chuck from MysteryAircraft.com. Dead Redhead. All right. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is a podcast of Boston Comic Con, Granite Con, PopCultureExpo.com, Granite Con, Rhode Island Comic Con, BooksAndMovies.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Visit ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on digital art and dozens of arts. Like Russian music provided by Large Stage Design. Check out their books and books and get them yeah, good luck with that. I want to thank our guest tonight, Joe Schmalke, for joining us. I want to thank the cast from the Revere Time Vortex, Kriana and Zombrian. Thank you very much, ladies. Good night. From before Color good Vault night. Thank you, Dead Redhead. Adio. This is Dome saying, Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everyone. I know.